Well, I hope you are off to a good start in the book. I don't know if you're where we are. Tonight we're going to cover another four chapters and uh, just again some highlights that I like to pull out of the book and you I'm sure, I'm sure have your own highlights. Chuck tells me, by the way, we have sold a lot of books, but we still have some if you don't have one and a lot of people now are getting them to give away. It is that kind of book, isn't it? When you read it, you start thinking, I've, I know some people who would really appreciate this book. And uh, so we do have, we still have some, I guess, Chuck, somebody will be out there after the service uh, too. Lance is out there now. Lance is out there now. Look, this is kind of informal. No, it is really informal. Uh, so if you don't have a book and you say, I want a book and you want to go get one, you go get one, all right? Uh, you can go now, but uh, just come back, okay? Don't get your book and leave if you do that. Um, but at any rate, I'm glad uh, that you're out with us. And again, I'm glad for all of those who are joining us on live stream. And I assume everybody picked up a, an outline. Oh, let me tell you something else that is out at the uh, uh, book table. Uh, every year when I do this, I have my secretary make um, the previous week's completed outline available. So if you weren't here last week and you didn't get to go through the four chapters as I kind of articulated them, uh, but you would like to have a copy of that outline, the completed outlines are at the table. And so next week, this outline will be completed and at the table as well. So you can pick those up. There, no charge for those. They're free, and uh, you can stop by and get those um, after our uh, session. Um, let's begin our time tonight uh, in prayer. Would you join me? Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, Father, the study that we can undertake, and uh, uh, Father, help us to grasp what we need to grasp. Uh, speak to our hearts where our hearts need to be spoken to. Convict us, challenge us, and uh, Father, uh, use the study that we're engaged in right now uh, to build us up, and uh, Father, to uh, uh, enable us to encourage and minister to others with this information. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now I want you to take your Bibles and open up to John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 47, something that uh, we do, or I like to do, as we kind of head into each week's session, and that is uh, uh, pull a relevant scripture and talk about that scripture in light of kind of the overall content that we'll be talking about. And uh, these, uh, these next uh, uh, four chapters are chapters that discuss, really, in my view, uh, what it means to be sure of your salvation. Part of the, uh, the reason that is important is because cultural Christians have a tendency to make a lot of assumptions about their salvation. And so uh, there's a lot of false assurance out there, and I think that's very devastating. Uh, you remember again, uh, the day will come when people will stand before Jesus and say, but Lord, we did this and we did this and we did all these things in your name. And Jesus will say, but I never knew you. They had a false assurance, but it didn't hold up when they had to stand before God. And uh, uh, much of what he is getting at, well, in this entire book, but in particular in these uh, four chapters we'll look at tonight, uh, uh, focus around, uh, are you sure that you're saved? Now, look at verse 47 of John's Gospel, chapter 6. It says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And then he goes on into his discussion with them about he is the bread of life. 
But that is a very important and powerful statement. And there's one, uh, there, there are several things that I want you to get from that as, before we head into this first uh, chapter that we look at tonight. As we think about salvation and we think about uh, uh, possessing salvation, uh, three things. First of all, this verse reminds us that salvation is available to all. It is available uh, to all. Are, is that going up? Yeah, there we go. Okay. Salvation is available to everyone. Now, our faith uh, is a narrow faith, but it is open to anyone. Does that make sense? Uh, our faith is a narrow faith. Jesus even said there are, are, are two ways. There's a broad way that leads to destruction, a wide road that leads to destruction. There's a narrow road that leads to life or to salvation. And, but the option is given to the individual in terms of which road you want to walk on and whichever path you want to choose. The path is narrow to God. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, uh, bode well for any which way works. Uh, in the series I'm in in the mornings and down the road, I'll be talking about uh, this myth that there are many, many paths to Christ. There are many paths to God. That's just not true. And it's a myth. And Jesus said there's a narrow way. But while it's narrow, it's not, it, doesn't, it won't limit anyone, whosoever. Did you notice this? It says, whosoever. And um, whoever believes has eternal life. So while the path is narrow, salvation is available to anyone who's willing uh, to receive Christ. The second thing I would tell you is salvation is not only available, salvation is obtainable by faith. We, we don't work for it. Um, you can't earn it. Um, it is available and obtainable, but it requires faith. And that is, I put my faith in Jesus Christ. He is the object of my faith. Sometimes you hear people say, well, you know, Christianity is, is just a, a blind expression of faith. No, it isn't. Blind faith. Let me tell you what blind faith is. You know, every time you have a crisis in this country, you'll hear people say, well, let's pray. But they never say where you should pray. Just pray as if prayer itself was something mystical or, or that prayer itself was alive. So if you just pray, just pray. But they never give you an object. Why? Because they don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. The fact is, uh, Christianity is not a blind faith. It isn't a faith that says, well, we just kind of just kind of pray. You pray, I pray. Uh, it, is a, it is not blind faith at all. Because your faith is placed in an object. And that's what makes all the difference. That's why when you pray, it makes a difference. Just to pray to pray is pointless. Um, and uh, because we have an object. We are not praying to pray. We are praying to Christ. Salvation isn't a blind leap of faith. It is an expression of faith in an object, and that object is the person of Jesus Christ. Okay? So salvation is obtainable, but it must be obtained by faith, not by works. And then number three, salvation is eternal in duration. Notice what he says right here. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. He clearly states that salvation has eternity in its duration. Now, let me 
just help you with something. Maybe you've come out of a faith, and I'm not fussing at you if you have, or that, that believe that you could lose your salvation. Well, now listen to me very carefully. If you could lose it, it was never eternal. Does that make sense? Jesus said what? Whosoever believes has conditional life, that means you sin and you, you lose it. He didn't say that, did he? He says you have eternal life. And when does eternal life start? It starts the moment you put your trust in Jesus Christ. The duration becomes eternal. If you can lose it, it wasn't eternal. Hello? If you can, if you can okay, I've been saved, uh, and so uh, everything is good. Oh, I messed up, which you're going to do, aren't you? Did that cause you to lose your salvation? If it did, what Jesus said is a lie because he said, I give you eternal life. I don't give you temporal life. I don't give you partial life. I don't even give you conditional life. I give you eternal life. Now, a lot of folks who say, well, they, they lost their salvation, didn't really lose their salvation. They never had it to start with. All right? Uh, they went out from us, John said. I think I quoted this this morning. They went out from us because they were not really one of us. And so uh, I love what Jesus says. It's very simple. Uh, It's not rocket science. He says, uh, I give you eternal life. So salvation is eternal in duration. And if you, look, if you live under the fear of I'm going to lose my salvation, that is a miserable existence with God, especially when he didn't say that. Uh, Now, again, granted, what we probably need to do is encourage people to examine whether or not they really ever got saved to start with. But if something's eternal, it doesn't, and you lose it, it wasn't eternal. So by definition, salvation is eternal in duration. That's what he says. All right. So with that as kind of our background this evening, I want us to talk about chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8. We talked about the first four last week. And by the way, if you didn't see those and you want to, you can go uh, to our website and view it on, uh, through our video on demand. You may be able to do it on one of our social media platforms, but you can uh, sure go to our website and you can pick up last week's session by video if you wish to do so. Chapter 5 is entitled Overcoming Obstacles. And he talks about five primary barriers um, that exist when you try to talk with someone who is an unsaved Christian or a cultural Christian. And he says, these are barriers that you have to understand which make it difficult to talk with someone uh, who is in that category, all right? Barrier number one, belief is a barrier sometimes. Cultural Christians believe in God and heaven, and they are not atheist. So it's sometimes hard to get through to a cultural Christian because they would say, well, well, I believe. I believe in heaven. I'm not an atheist. And so why would you be talking to me about these things or even suggesting the idea that I may have never truly responded to the gospel? It's a barrier. It's, it's the barrier of belief. Now, we know, and we, I talked to you about this last week a little bit, it is an intellectual belief. It's not a saving belief. There's a difference in, between a head knowledge of God, and a saving knowledge of Christ. Hello? 
And that's the difference. But a cultural Christian just sees themselves as, I'm not an atheist. I believe in Jesus. I believe in heaven. I even believe in hell. I believe in all the things that you're supposed to believe in. They believe in those things, but they have never truly received what the gospel means. Number two on your outline, James 2.19 reveals the difference between religious knowledge and saving belief. The difference between religious knowledge and saving belief. Now, what does James 2.19 say? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's a passage that says, you believe in God, you do well. But even the demons believe and tremble. Now, we know the de- we're not going to see any demons in the kingdom of God. Hello? They believe. What is that? They have an intellectual awareness of whatever level spiritually uh, that, in fact, I would suggest the demons probably know more about God than the average Christian does. Hello? And yet we know that they're not saved. They have no relationship. What are they? they Why well, was James saying that? He was revealing the difference between a religious knowledge, which characterizes cultural Christianity, and a true saving belief. Demons have a religious knowledge uh, of who Christ is, who God is. They know, but uh, they're not saved. Number three, here's a second barrier he mentions. He mentions the barrier of values, and he interprets it like this. Good people go to heaven. So one of the barriers to talking to cultural or the unsaved Christian is that they have values. They have good values. They may have Uh, great moral values. There are some religious groups in our land that have stellar moral values and are good people. But it's not about goodness. But the cultural Christian, the unsaved Christian, believes, well, you know, good people go to heaven. I've heard it through the years as a pastor, and I've heard it in many Baptist churches where uh, uh, people will talk. And here's where you hear it the most. You hear it at funerals. Well, they're in heaven. They sure were a good person. Uh, and, um, uh, I, I remember, I, I guess I hadn't been here, but a couple of years and I was doing funeral and I went to see the family the night before the funeral, a, a mom and a, a dad, they were, um, elderly and their son had been killed, um, in a car accident, uh, just a few days before. And he was in his early forties. And I was, again, relatively new, and they, this family had not been in Ridgecrest for years and years and years, but they still considered Ridgecrest their church home. And so I got a call, would you, um, would you do the funeral service? And so I went to meet with this family. I won't ever forget sitting beside them. And I said, well, I said, I didn't know your son, but I said, may I ask you, had he ever put his trust in Jesus Christ? And when I asked that question, I was expecting them to say, oh, yeah, you know, he received Christ. This is what they did. She looked at her husband. She said, do you remember? Did he? Did he ever? He went to vacation Bible school. Do do you recall? Did he ever? Did he receive? And the dad said, oh, of course he did. He was such a good young man. And I have to tell you something. I I felt that weird thing go up inside of me. I thought, oh, no. They don't even know if he was saved, which probably means he evidenced no fruit to indicate that he was saved. 
he, like they, had not been in church for decades. But the assumption is in cultural Christianity that, uh, but if your good outweighs your bad, you're okay with God. It's a barrier. Uh, number four in your outline, cultural Christians believe that they are first in line because of their values. It's purely salvation by works. Does, does that make sense, his statement? They believe they're first in line. In other words, I'm better than most people, therefore I gotta, I, I'm in the first row of those whom God lets into to heaven. That's kind of what he's trying to say. In other words, they, they have worked and, uh, for their salvation. That's, the, that's part of that second barrier, their values. All right, number five on your outline is barrier three. What is barrier? So the first barrier is belief. The second barrier is values. The third barrier is heritage. I bet you can figure that one out, can't you? It is the heritage of faith in the family that is confused by cultural Christians as saving faith. Did you get that? The heritage of faith in the family is confused by cultural Christians as saving faith. Oh, what does that mean? What is, it means this. People say, well, my family's always been Christian. Uh, we've all, or we've been a member of the Baptist church for as long as I can remember, or whatever other church it was. We've always been, been Christian. It is this heritage thing as if it is passed on from person to person just because the person in front of you or the family member next to you was a believer, then you are a believer uh, as well. And that's a major issue in cultural Christianity. Well, our family has always believed. I've heard it many times. Maybe you have. You may have said it, but listen, you don't get there that way. It's not, this is not something, something you can hand off. It, this isn't like a person lying on their deathbed and saying, oh, by the way, son, before I go, I want to hand you my salvation. I want to pass it on to you. Now, you can pass it on, but you can't pass it on by just simply saying, because I'm a Christian, you're a Christian. Does that make sense? Doesn't work that way. When I was uh, um, in high school and took biology, they taught us about a thing called osmosis. Y'all know what osmosis is? Osmosis is when something is transferred between membranes. So it, it, it can transfer between, you don't get saved that way. It may work in biology, but it does not work uh, in the spiritual realm. You, you don't pass it on just by existing in a family heritage that believes. And there are a lot of people, especially in the South, say, well, our family, we've always been Baptist. Well, you know, it, by the way, if you'll, if you'll use that line, I'm a Baptist, and if you'll put $3.50 with it and go to a local coffee shop, they'll give you a free coffee. That's how much that's worth. Uh, some of y'all, wait, you get home, you'll, you'll figure out what uh, that meant. But, um, but at any rate, it doesn't work that way. I remember hearing a politician in a southern state a bunch of years ago now say this, I'm counting on a godly mother and father to get me into the kingdom of God. Wow. Surprise. Because I, 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 I think he was old enough then that he's probably already had his encounter. And you know what? Unless something happened otherwise, he was in for a big surprise because it just don't, it's not about your heritage, all right? Uh, you may have a good heritage, and by the way, the, a good godly heritage is something that I think has an influence and an impact, you know, on, on family, but it is not a guarantee and it doesn't 
automatically make everybody else Christians. Okay, number six, barrier number four. That sounds weird. Number six, barrier number four. Number four is rites of passage. Cultural Christians believe that participating in events like baptism, Easter, and Christmas are rites of passage that put them in good standing with God. You know, well, you know, I was baptized when I was. Baptism is important, I believe. It won't save you. It, it never will save you. But cultural Christians see those kinds of things. Yeah, well, you know what? Every Easter, our family goes to church together. Good. And I, I'm, by the way, he makes a point in this thing, in this uh, section, that uh, Easter and Christmas probably ought to be viewed as the greatest time uh, uh, for outreach of the church to people that are already a part of the church. Because so many cultural Christians, well, you know, it's, it's our thing. I'm for that. Don't get me wrong. I like people coming Christmas Eve. I like them coming on Easter and everything. But a lot of the folks who come to church on Easter and Christmas are just cultural Christians. It's just our thing. We just all do this. Does that make sense? And that's what his point is, is uh, uh, that that it's like a rite of passage. It's just what we do. And because we do that, it gives us good standing with God. All right, number seven, barrier number five. Here's the fifth barrier he gives. It is the barrier of ignorance. Cultural Christians simply don't know the difference between what they believe and the genuine gospel and true Christianity. They just don't know the difference. They, they've made false assumptions or they're ignorant uh, uh, in terms of what the real gospel is. You remember when people would come and tell Jesus, I want to be your disciple? Now, uh, they were saying, I, I want to follow you. And remember, Jesus always was pretty matter of fact. The, the truth is, Jesus would have a hard time being a pastor in the average church today, wouldn't he? In fact, you know, COVID has reduced our gathered numbers. It hasn't reduced our church. Our church has actually grown in an unusual way during COVID. But I'll tell you this, if Jesus were the pastor here, this would be a much smaller church. Because, because Jesus always made sure everybody knew precisely what it meant to follow him. I'm not sure we always do a good job, and I'm pointing myself, I'm not sure we always do a good job at that, uh, to say, do you really understand what it means to follow me? Jesus said to them, many of them said, well, I'm going to follow you, but I've got to do this. And Jesus said, no problem, you go do that, but that's not the way to become my follower. And it wasn't about works, but it was about understanding the truth. Jesus never minced words and, uh, with that. Um, and, and there are many today who are ignorant of what the gospel means. The gospel means I recognize that I'm a sinner. I recognize that, that my sin uh, has put me at odds with God and that I need a solution and that Jesus Christ dying for my sins was that solution and I need to repent. And uh, uh, many times cultural Christian just doesn't, they don't understand that. All right. So those are the barriers, he said, to trying to that you have to get past with a cultural Christian because all of those things kind of conspire. In some cases, multiples conspire together to cause a cultural Christian to believe everything's all right with them and God. Then chapter 6 is entitled False Assurance. And uh, number one in, in that chapter that I pulled out was um, uh, 
not a precise quote, but a, uh, an idea that he referenced on page 64, and it's this, that many of those who we refer to as backslidden people are really lost people. You know how, how Baptists have always, they've always handled people that confess Christ and then live like the devil? We just say, well, they're backslidden. There's a problem there. A person that truly received Christ can't live backslidden the rest of their life. The people aren't backslidden. We've given a lot of folks passes over the years, and that's because we, we want them to be all right. And sometimes it's a family member. We say, well, they, they trusted Christ years ago, but they're just kind of backslidden. Look, look I don't want to hurt your feelings. They're not backslidden. They're lost. We sometimes say, well, they, uh, others would describe it, what I talked about earlier, well, they lost their salvation. No, they didn't lo- lose their salvation. They never had it. And, uh, and consequently, that's why they, they are backslidden. Now, do I believe a person can backslide? The answer is yes. Do I believe a person can live there? No. I think they can go there, but I don't think they can stay there. Does that make sense? And a lot of the folks that, I mean, I've known people say, well, when I've done, well what, what about your brother? Well, he's, he's, he's been backslidden for years and years. Now he's, I, he's, he's lost. See? If the Spirit of God is in you, you're not going to stay perpetually backslidden. All right? Number two, the beautiful doctrine of eternal security provides assurance and confidence for the believer. It can also cause someone to falsely think they are saved. Now, I love this doctrine of eternal security. You know, eternal security is once saved, always saved. Once you get saved, you're saved forever. I love that. I believe that. I think it's biblical uh, because the alternative is you believe that you can lose your salvation, and we've already addressed that. But let me tell you what the danger in the doctrine of once saved, always saved is that a a, a cultural Christian can use it to falsely assume that they're all right with God. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. When I was a a little thing, I, 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 I trusted God, so I'm all right. And maybe, maybe they, maybe they did. I'm not saying they don't. I've seen lots of little ones and we help little ones come to know Christ. And that's very important. So it's not about the age. But it is instead about the true knowledge of was I saved or am I just saying, well, I'm, I walked down an aisle. And because I walked down the aisle, I'm okay with God. Because you know, once saved, always saved. Here is the evidence. Here is the evidence of eternal security. Are you ready? That there's fruit, spiritual fruit being produced in your life. Spiritual fruit. Now, we don't... Look, you don't produce fruit to be saved, but if you're saved, you produce fruit. Hello? And the fruit that comes out of your life is the evidence that you are saved. It is evidence. It is not the means to salvation. And consequently, if you just say, well, I, there's been no fruit really in a person's life, but they, I remember when they confessed Christ... I want to tell you a story. I received a call on Thursday for a young man, and I'm not going to call his name. He's in Florida. I guess he's in his uh, 
late 30s, early 40s. I've known him since he was a little bitty guy. I, I performed his wedding. He is a smart, brilliant lawyer. And um, he called me to say, I, I, I said, well, hey, I said, what's going on? I'll tell you his first name. His first name's Mike. And he said, uh, I said, well, what's going on, Mike? He said, man, I just had to call and tell you something. I said, well, what's that? Uh, Allison and I are dear friends with their family. His dad is one of my f- best friends in the entire world. And he said, you know, he said, I just wanted to say to you, thank you for all the investments you've made in my life. I said, well, thank you, Mike. That blessed me. And you didn't have to call and tell me that, but thank you. He said, no, I wanted you to know that. He said, because it finally bore fruit. And I said, well, what does that mean? He said, he said, for years, Ray, he said, I have just assumed I was saved because I, because I walked the aisle or because I, I knew the right things to say, but he said, I wasn't saved. And he said, I don't know how to explain this, but he said, God jumped all over me a couple of weeks ago. And he said, I want to tell you something. It is so different than what I thought was reality for a saved person. And he said, he said, I can't get enough of God's Word. He said, it's all I want to do. I want to show you God's Word. I can't get enough of, of talking to Him and praying. He said, my own daughter, teenage daughter, came up to me and said the other night, Daddy, you're different. And he said, he said I think I've just played games. for." And by the way, sincerely played them. I mean, he's one of those guys you say, I want him in my church. He's a deacon in his church. He's one of those guys, you know, you would, you would say, well, gosh, he's, he's moral. He's well-mannered. All of those things. He, he does the right things. He's taught classes in Sunday school and all of that kind of stuff. But guess what? He finally, suddenly, it was like his eyes were opened up. And he realized, I'm not saved. And the Spirit of God fell on him. And it was so fun. We talked for about 30 minutes. Uh, and... Um, and by the way, I asked him, I said, Mike, that's exactly what I'm talking about on Sunday nights. Could I share your story? He said, if my story will, will bless or help anybody, he says, you have complete freedom to do just that. The doctrine of eternal security can be dangerous to a cultural Christian because they assume if they go through the motions or if they've said the right things, like Mike, that that automatically means they are saved. Number three, a troubling reality in much of evangelical life, is that convincing someone they are saved seems to take precedence over making sure someone is actually saved. Do you get that? Convincing someone that they're saved takes precedence over whether or not a person is actually saved. And a lot of times, you know, I've seen this, and I've actually counseled with uh, people where I've asked what we call diagnostic questions to see if they were, uh, if they had the answers that would match up with the gospel. And I've had people, for example, um, I've had teenagers come see me before. And uh, when I would begin to ask them kind of probing questions, they were struggling with their faith, whether or not they were really saved. And the parents start answering for them. Oh yeah, no, no. You remember when you, and I've had to ask the parents to leave the room so I could just talk to their student. Because the parent would oftentimes try to answer for them because the parent didn't want to 
to admit that my kid is feeling like they're lost because everybody knows they are saved. And by the way, let me tell you something. There are a lot of people sitting in our churches today who are in that boat too. They have for so long convinced everybody that they're saved, but they're empty inside because they've never trusted Jesus Christ. But they know what to say and know what to do and know how to, to go through. And so they say, well, I couldn't, if I, you know, and they're always trying to talk themselves into it. Yeah, I, I, I'm saved. I, I'm saved. But they live with these lingering doubts. I want to tell you something. If that's you here or are you watching by live stream, don't live that way anymore. Quit worrying about what somebody else is going to think if you say, you know what, all these years I hadn't been saved. He wouldn't mind me telling you this. I didn't see him here uh, today, but Harry Smith. Harry Smith served in this church for years. He was a deacon uh, for years. He's a good man. Everybody likes Harry Smith. But I'll tell you, one Wednesday night, I offered an invitation to anybody uh, to receive Christ that did not truly receive Christ. And I'll never forget where he was. He's sitting, Pat, he's sitting about where you guys are over there, you and Phyllis. And all of a sudden, I'm down here teaching on a Wednesday night, and he jumps up and interrupts me, and he says, yeah, It's me. It's me, and he's coming down the, the road. I didn't ask him to. He's coming down, and he's coming down like this. And I thought, I think he's going to beat me up. <laughs> and it's one of my favorite stories. And he's coming down now, and he says, it's me. It's me. And he got right, over, right in there, and he said, Brother Ray, I'm not saved. All these years of serving, and something finally caused him to say, I'm not saved. I'm not doing this anymore. And I want to tell you something. He's one of the sweet, he was a good man there. He's a sweet man now. I mean, he's just as pleasant as can be. Why? Because there's a difference between thinking you're saved and living with doubt and then experiencing genuine salvation. And I want to tell you something. Don't live like that. I went to the home of another one of our members some years ago, and um, they had struggled and struggled and struggled with this whole thing. And, and, and listen, they had to find, they said, well, you know, I think I am, I think I am. And then they'll talk themselves into it and they'd be okay for a while. And then they'd start struggling again. No, I'm not saved. I'm not saved. And the devil, by the way, will use that against a person. And they're always in a kind of spiritual turmoil. And then, but they find, they settled it that night. We talked about it. They settled it. But a lot of people, I had a man, Allison, I, Allison knows, uh, uh, Gerald James, who uh, was one of the, I thought, one of the best men I'd ever seen in church, he, in my church in Texas, and, and um, I later brought him on staff when I pastored in St. Petersburg, and uh, he had been a, 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 a drapery, uh, a head of a drapery firm at that time that made um, most of the draperies for all the major hotels around the world, and he was a man of means and everything, but he was a good man, a good Bible teacher and everything. And I will never forget the night he said, I need to be saved. And everybody thought, what? And by the way, I, I used to say, if Gerald James is not a saved man, everybody in this place ought to question whether they've been saved. But he said, I'm not a saved man. And if you would ask him years later, when did you get saved? He'd always point back to that, that occasion. And for years he had lived in the religious world, the religious cycle of things, doing the right things, saying the right things, all of uh, that. But, but he finally realized, I'm not really saved. Well, I spent a lot of time there, but don't let the doctrine of eternal security cause you to falsely believe you're saved. Now, I'm not trying to create doubt in you. But Paul did write in 2 Corinthians and say this, let us examine ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith. 
lest indeed we fail the test. Again, I'm not trying to create doubt in you, but if it would get you saved, because you're not, I would. I don't think we, we talk enough about it. We just say, oh yeah, we want, you're, you're saved, you're saved, you're okay. But you know, <clears throat> I had two uh, young preachers come to see me. We differ on some doctrine called Calvinism. And they were trying to convince me to become a Calvinist. And they were good guys, came out of one of our seminaries, and um, they wanted to, to convince me that, that I needed uh, to, to be a Calvinist. I said, I used to be a Calvinist. I was a Calvinist when, when Calvin wasn't cool. I said, but now he's cool, and I'm not a Calvinist anymore. I said, I'm a Biblicist. And, well, you don't need to hear all that conversation, but they were, I said, uh, you, you guys, I said, when I give you Scripture, you, get, you quote John Piper to me. Why, why is it? I said, what do you do with this verse that John writes in 1 John 5, 13? These things have I written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. Because, you see, they believed in a doctrine that I don't hold to. They believe in perseverance of the saints. You know what perseverance of the saints says? It says that if you, if you hold on, if you persevere to the end, then you're saved. And so I said to them, they said, well, you, you believe that, don't you? you? I said, I believe in eternal security, and that's not perseverance of the saints. I believe in preservation of the saints. Jesus said, all that are mine are in my hand, and no one can snatch them away. I said, that means Jesus is holding on to me. I'm not trying to hold on to him to the end. And I, so I asked these, these young guys, we had a good conversation, but I asked them, I said, let me ask you a question. I said, uh, how do you know you're the elect? And one of them said, well, I think I am. I said, no, how do you know? And he said, well, I, I believe I am. I, I believe God called me in the ministry and he saved me. And I said, it might very well be true. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that it isn't. But I said, how do you know that you're saved if you believe in perseverance of the saints, which means you won't know, I said, Remember, I used to be a Calvinist. I know what I'm talking about. You won't know until the final day that you made it or not. I said, um, so you've got to persevere to the end. It's almost really close, and this they hate. It's almost real close to works kind of salvation. I've got to hold on to God. I've got to hold on to God till the very end. I've got to hold on to God. Now, I'm not making fun of them. I have lots of friends that are of that uh, persuasion. But my point is, is this. Look, if you've got to hold on to God, God's not, it's not, you're, God's not holding on to you. And I, I said to these seminary-trained pastors, two of them, sitting in my office, I said, so let me ask you, what do you do with 1 John 5, 13? These things I've written to you that you may, because here's what one finally said to me. I said, so how do you know? How do you know that you're the elect? Finally, he said, well, I don't think you, can, you really can know. And when he did, I said, what? I said, what do you do with 1 John 5, 13? These things I have written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you may hope that you have eternal life, that you may know that you have eternal life. And dear friend, I would say to you tonight, I, I've camped there longer than I meant to, but I'd say to you tonight, don't live in this life hoping that you're saved. 
Because you don't have to. You, don't, you can't earn it. You can't persevere. Oh, man, I'm going to get there and, and finally, and I hope it'll be good. I'm waiting for the verdict. Whosoever believes has eternal life. Jesus said it, not me. I'm just repeating it. So don't let the doctrine of eternal, well, I, you know, when I was a kid, I think I got saved, and therefore I'm saved. Don't let that doctrine confuse you, okay? And uh, as I said, number three, a, trouble, a troubling reality is that much of the evangelical, li- evangelical life is that convincing someone that they're saved seems to take precedence over making sure. So I just, you're saved, you're saved, that kind of thing. Don't, you, you know. Number four, some, somehow questioning another person's salvation became taboo in evangelical culture when it could possibly be one of the most loving things you can do for another person. Somewhere it became taboo. You don't ask a person. That's personal. That's personal. And so we don't, tell me when you got saved. Can you tell me when you got saved? I want to tell you this. I've done a lot of premarital counseling here lately. And when these couples come in, the first thing I ask them is, I want you to tell me about how you got saved. Tell me about when you came to know Christ. Because it'll tell me a lot about how they understand what salvation is all about. And, uh, and so um, somewhere along the line, it became taboo. Oh, you don't ask people that sort of thing. That, that, that's personal. I want to tell you, look, it may bend some people's screen. You can do it lovingly. It, it, but listen to me. It may be the most loving thing that you can ever do for a person. Right? If they have... Have they fallen prey to, well, I, I do the right things or go through the religious motions? Folks, you could be, as the Bible says, snatching them from the fire. All right, chapter 7, the country club church. Number one, unsaved Christians thrive where church membership means nothing. Page 74, unsaved Christians thrive where church membership means nothing. I mean, just, just hook up. You don't have, there's no expectation. Church membership just means that you belong uh, to a group. When it's viewed that way, and by the way, a lot of uh, people say, well, then I'm not, I'm not joining church. I, I preached a few, a few months ago on the body, the body of Christ and the gifts that God has given us. And one reason a person ought to join a local body is because the gifts are designed to function with the other gifts of a local body. And if a person says, well, I, sometimes I go here and sometimes I go there and sometimes I go there, guess what? You cannot take your gifts and then employ them in the use of the body. That's why they had local uh, churches in the New Testament. It's so that the believers could do body life, but a person who never connects with a local congregation can never take their gifts and abilities and fit them with the rest of the gifts and abilities that form the body of Christ. Does that make sense? And so that's why it's so important. Number two, different churches may have different requirements for church membership, but one non-negotiable should be that one has to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ by faith and repent of, uh, of their sin. That ought to be a non-negotiable, is that a person has uh, put their trust in Jesus Christ by faith, not through works, and repent of sin. 
Number three, unbelievers know when their friends who claim to be Christians don't actually take their faith seriously. Unbelievers know, they recognize that when a person says, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but the fruit thing again argues against them. There's either no fruit or the wrong kind of fruit. By the way, everybody produces fruit. Everybody produces some kind of fruit. It may be rotten fruit. And unbelievers know. They can recognize when a person says, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. In fact, there was uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, a uh, uh, chief justice of our Supreme Court, many years ago, he had uh, a pastor was a close friend of his, and the pastor was a godly man who talked to him about receiving Christ. But you know what Oliver Wendell Holmes said? He said, I would have become a Christian, but I knew too many. I would have become a Christian, but I've already seen too many. And he said, if that's what a Christian is, I, why should I become one? And tragically, that has happened more often than we would like. But the fact is that unbelievers know when their friends who claim to be Christians don't actually take their faith seriously. We would change the culture if we took our faith seriously in everything that we did. Number, number next, what is that? Number four, Paul wrote his New Testament letters to local churches reminding us of the importance of being attached to a specific body. Okay, he wrote, think about it, he wrote his letters to local congregations, the Corinthians, the Galatians, the Ephesians. Uh, and that reminds us again of the importance, as I've said already, of uh, being attached to a specific body. Number five, the Bible does not talk about church membership. I mean, the Bible does talk about uh, church membership. Look at page 82 in your book. You brought your book? Okay, page 82. And uh, just quickly, I'm just going to highlight these. Uh, it was easier than putting them on your outline. But in page 82, where in the Bible does it talk about being a member of a church? And this is an important topic, especially because we've got some generations that are coming up now who say, eh, there's no point in really being attached or connected to a local congregation. Uh, and then you see, he gives some wonderful scriptures behind each of the uh, reasons that he gives. The local church, number one, is a royal embassy. He talks about that. Number two, the local church is the family of God. And being a member of a local church is being a member of God's household and his family, his spiritual siblings, uh, uh, together. Number three, we are stones in Christ's temple. Number four, we are Christ's body. And that goes back to, that's a metaphor that goes back to the body parts that we uh, talked about. Number five, the church is the bride of Christ. I, I did a wedding on Friday night, and I told this couple in the wedding, I said, one of the reasons the, the institution of marriage is so significant and sacred is because Jesus thought highly of marriage. And I said, remember that Jesus calls the church his bride. And that one day he's coming for his bride. He's coming back for his bride. And so there, there's, as he says, these invoke Deep images of belonging, uh, a kingdom, a family, a building block in a larger structure, a part of a body, a bride in marriage. Membership is not a new invitation. It is the basic understanding of how we are to live out our faith together. And you might want to take some time to go back and review that if you haven't. Then number six, one of the primary reasons cultural Christianity isn't challenged in some churches today is because Pastors are afraid 
those people will leave if they're offended. And, and, and you know, as a pastor, I know I, I have to tell you that there have been times in my ministry where I've preached something hard and strong and then thought, Lord, that's going to run some people off. And the devil will work on a preacher and say, you sure you want to say that? You sure you want to take that stand? Because if you do, you're going to offend some people and they're going to leave. And nobody wants to, no pastor wants people to leave because, because of his message. He wants people to say, yeah, I got it, got it, I've got it, I've got it. I want to, I want to hear more of it. That's what a pastor probably wants. But, and many today are saying it's not work. We'd rather just have people be there or be tuned in than preach the truth. Frankly, there are some things in this series that I'm on on Sunday mornings that I suspect will be offensive to some believers or some who confess to be believers. And I'm not going to tackle anything that is not in the Word of God, but I'm going to tackle things that are myths. They're a twist or a perversion of what God has said. And there are a lot of uh, uh, pastors today, and I, I can understand. I, I don't think it's acceptable, but I can understand that they're afraid that if, if they challenge cultural Christianity in their churches, people will get offended and leave, or the people will rise up and say, we're not leaving, you are. Okay, chapter 8, the final chapter tonight, Christmas and Easter. And this is where he says something I mentioned earlier. Number one, Easter as an outreach is overblown and overrated. It is not, look at this, un, not unchurched people who show up to church for Easter in droves. It is unsaved cultural Christians. And you know, when I first read that, I thought, you know, he's exactly right. Uh, it, it, it's exactly right. It's not uh, those who uh, say, I'm not saved, I'm going to church. It's typically the cultural Christians say, yeah, we, we try to go a couple times a year. By the way, some alarming statistics show us that today um, the average Christian, now you're not average, or you wouldn't be here on Sunday night. I'll be honest with you, you're not average. Um, but the average Christian today considers themselves active in a congregation if they attend a couple of times a quarter. That's today. That's a, that's a stunning thing. When I read that, I thought, based on good research from a leading polling organization, they consider themselves uh, active if they attend a couple of times uh, a quarter. Cultural Christianity, I think, is reflected in that. Number two, uh, for the cultural Christian family, church on Easter is just what you do. You know, maybe get a new outfit. I'm not against all of those things. Uh, uh, get you a new outfit, all of that kind of, of stuff. But but for a cultural Christian, it's just the kind of thing, our family does this. And um, number three, it is easy and far too common for churches to throw away the opportunity to use the tradition of holidays to help cultural Christians understand the exact meaning of these celebrations. In other words, it's easy just to do feel good instead of make sure a person knows what is Easter really about, that Jesus Christ had to die on a cross, a cruel death on a cross for your sins, and then be raised from the dead so you could have eternal life and eternal hope. Or this baby, you remember I said on Christmas Eve night, this baby that was born in the manger, we had a manger right here, 
that you can't look at the manger if you look, read the gospel without seeing the shadow of the cross. And we have to, we have to get beyond just the, the, the feel-good kind of thing, the baby in the manger. I, I, I'm glad for the baby in the manger, okay? But we have to move beyond just the sentimentality of the, the story to the fact that that's a baby laying there that was born with a specific purpose, and it was to suffer and bear the sins of the world upon them. Now, that's the reality of the Christmas story. And thank God for it. Amen? And um, so we, we, have to, we have to understand. We have a responsibility to communicate. What is the real story going on? Number four, in America, you can celebrate the incarnation, that is the birth of Christ, the birth of God in the flesh. You can celebrate the incarnation and resurrection without having to believe these biblical events matter at all to your, uh, to your life. In America, in cultural Christianity, you can celebrate these things without ever taking it personally, without ever saying, that baby was born to die for me. The cross, that baby died on the cross for me. This is about me. This, I don't care uh, if, it, if anybody else gets it. I get it. It's about me. It's personal. And then he says on page 98, he says there's a profile of Christmas and Easter. Look at this. This is the last thing, and we're done on page 98. Profile of Christmas and Easter Christians. You, you ready? Are you there? Sentiment, sentimentality is king. Families must spend these days together, even if various church mem or members go, to, uh, the, um, go the rest of the year without speaking. These gatherings are mandatory. Missing church is not an option. Faith is not necessary for the celebration. Christmas and Easter are just the December and April stops on a year-long holiday train following pumpkins, Valentine's fireworks, and back-to-school shopping. They are committed to tradition. They want to keep a Christmas, uh, Christ in Christmas... They want these holidays to remain special, even if they don't know why. They prepare, commit, plan, etc. And then there is a disconnect, like other holidays, when the calendar changes, the hype is gone, and there's no remaining impact in their life. Isn't that interesting? And um, that's the profile, he says, for the Easter and the Christ, uh, Christmas Christians. Well... Uh, I want to tell you something. It's got some strong stuff in it, doesn't it? I mean, but if you read it openly and honestly, you can see some of that very clearly around us and stuff that we've just accepted as the norm, that cultural Christianity is kind of the norm. And that seems to be becoming more pronounced, doesn't it, in our culture today? That this, you know, and by the way, don't hear me say, as I, as I quote him, don't hear me say that that I have problem with people coming to church on Christmas and Easter. I love people coming to church on Christmas and Easter. I just wish they came a lot more. Uh, and I want them to understand what the gospel is, why those celebrations are what they are, that they are traditions for sure, but they're so much more than tradition. They are, tra they are tradition because somewhere back there we understood the story that's going on here that makes gathering at Christmas so significant or at Easter so important. And so uh, ask yourself the questions. You say, yeah, I, I, uh, there's some people I know who are cultural Christians. Look, 
And I hope it's not the case for anybody in here, but it might be. Are you a cultural Christian and not a biblical Christian? And if you are, make sure you change that. And don't worry about what someone is going to think. You know, I gave you several examples of people that got saved later on after they've gone through the cultural Christianity thing and everything looked right and everybody thought they were, they were believers. I want to tell you, you go ask any of those people that I shared their stories with and they would and say, were you, was it kind of hard? Were you embarrassed to say, you know what, I don't think I'm embarrassed? And not one of them will say, nah, I wasn't embarrassed. I am so glad I did it. Because you don't want to go through life guessing. Hello? I love when I do a funeral for a saint. You know, the believer is called a saint. That's what you are. You're a saint. And I love when I do, I, I hate losing them, I have to tell you. And we've had a lot this year that we, we have buried. But I love when I do the funeral for a saint. You know why? Because I don't have to preach them into heaven. I don't do that anyway. But I know when I'm standing here and I'm preaching their service, I'm not guessing. I'm not having to say, well, we think they were, they're probably on target. We think they're, they're pretty good. I, I don't do that anymore. I'm too, too old in this process. I don't, I don't do that anymore. If I don't know, I, I, I rarely would do a service for somebody I didn't know where, what their uh, salvation was like. And if I don't know them, I talk extensively with their family. Tell me about when they got saved and how they got saved and those sorts of things. Because when a person is saved, we don't have to worry about how the story ends up. But if a cultural Christian, and if that's you, you ought to be scared to death. Again, I'm not trying to create doubt or, or spook you unless you need to be spooked. Because what you don't need to do is live your life saying, I think I am. I probably am. I remember, you know, I walked down an aisle. Walking down an aisle, well, we don't do that much anymore. But I want to tell you something. You can be saved by, from, when you walk down an aisle and the end product is that you genuinely trust Christ, or you can walk down an aisle and just be nothing more than a cultural Christian if you don't really understand the gospel. Lord Jesus, help us. I pray for any that are listening by live stream or uh, here in this live audience, God, if they're not sure that they would get sure, they would make sure that if they died tonight, and they could, that they would be in your presence. Today you will be with me in paradise, that Jesus would take them immediately into his presence. So, Father, I pray for any in that category, God, that they would put their trust in you. And now with heads bowed and eyes closed, those of you who are watching by live stream, if you say, I, I want to be sure, I'm not sure I'm saved, and I have been struggling and struggling and struggling with this, and I understand now that the gospel is not about me working and earning that favor with God. It is about me simply by faith receiving what he's already done on my behalf through the cross and the resurrection. And right now, you call out to him in your heart. You just say something like this, Lord Jesus, I'm not sure I've ever been saved, but I want to be saved. I want to know that I know that I know. I want you to fall on me. I repent, Father, of my sin, and I invite Jesus Christ to become my Savior. I accept what he did for me. I receive him into my life, and I ask that he would change me and transform me through the power of his Holy Spirit dwelling inside of me. Right now, I invite you to be my Savior. Lord, I pray that you'll hear any of those prayers in Jesus' name.
Amen. Uh, I know he hears those prayers. And I want to ask you to do something. If you prayed a prayer like that tonight, either by live stream or here in this live audience, you prayed a prayer to say, I, I want to share, I want you to do something. I want you to text the word pastor to us. The word pastor, text it to this number, 334-384-8080. 334-384-8080. Would you text the word pastor to us? By the way, if you'd like to join Ridgecrest, I talked about the, how important it is to join. Text that word, join, J-O-I-N, join, uh, 334-384-8080. Would you just text that word? We'll take it from there. You don't have to do anything else. But those are important decisions. They're important commitments. And so I hope that you'll let us know about your decision. Again, whether you're in this live audience or you're watching by live stream. So glad you've been here tonight. Thank you for coming back out. I didn't know if we'd have enough to gather, honestly, when we started this uh, last week uh, with COVID and all of that. Be safe. Be smart. We want you to do all of those kinds of things and... Uh, and uh, Look forward to seeing you here on Wednesday night, 6 p.m. in here. I'm continuing my discussion about America in the last days. And that's what we've been talking about the last two weeks in Pacific. I hope you'll be here. I hope you have a great week. God bless you, and you're dismissed.